Thank you, Martin, for reading God's word to us. What sort of food do you need for the week ahead? What sort of food do you need for the week ahead? For many of us, it's a big week at Mania. And I know that there is a difference between once and needs, but when it's morning tea and Heather and Lauren and their team bring out these platters of morning tea, I tell you what, I need that morning tea. And when Roger and Gareth come around and ask, hey, would you like a coffee at morning tea time? My, my hand is only slightly shaking as I say, yes, please. And on the note of mania, I forgot to mention, if you ordered a shirt, Heather will be in the back office to help you get your shirt after church today, the mania shirts. Maybe it's a regular week for you. You're at work. What do you need? A steak and potatoes, if that's you, at the end of the day. Maybe apple, carrot, turmeric, and ginger juice, if, if that's your thing. Maybe you're on holidays. What do you need? Chocolate, lollies, fizzy drink. My daughter got back from a school trip to Japan yesterday, and she brought back these jelly beans that were spectacular. And now I think, well, maybe I need Japanese jelly beans to get me through this week. What sort of food do you need for the week ahead? If the week ahead in fall involves following Jesus, and I hope it does, then we will need food from Jesus to see us through this week. In order to follow in Jesus' footsteps, we must be filled with his food. That's what Luke is telling us today in this part of chapter 9. Followers of Jesus must be fed by Jesus. Followers of Jesus must be fed by Jesus. We're going to tackle that under three headings. I'll give them to you now. If you want to write these down, we'll come back to them as we go through this passage. We'll begin with the shared ministry of Jesus. That's verses 1 to 11. The shared ministry of Jesus, a taste of God's kingdom. And then we'll move to the unique mission of Jesus in verses 12 to 22. That is a taste of God's king. And then we'll finish up with the comprehensive message of Jesus in verses 23 to 27. That is a taste of life. And as Tony mentioned, uh, kids, youth, it is fantastic to have you with us today. How great it is to be together under God's word this morning. Let me pray as we dig in. Father God, we're so thankful that you speak to us, that you have given us your word, and we ask now that you might give us a real attentiveness to what you say, uh, that it would be for our good in the Lord Jesus and for your honor and glory. Amen. The shared ministry of Jesus, a taste of God's kingdom. Jesus gathers the twelve in, in verse 1, a dozen people called and chosen by Jesus. They've hung out heaps with Jesus, a holy huddle, but now sent out by Jesus in verse 2 to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Before they go, Jesus gives them their packing list. 
And many of us have packed for a school camp or a weekend away for a holiday. Our packing lists, they're often long and detailed, right? But there's only one thing on the apostles' packing list. Nothing. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Is Jesus really sending them out with nothing? No, he's not. Look back at verse 1. He gave them. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Jesus gives them what they need to do the ministry he's called them to. The twelve go out in dependence on God, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing people everywhere. Their ministry causes a stir. Herod the Tetrarch, he gets a sniff of what's going on. He's curious, perplexed. The rumors are flying around. And the question of Jesus' identity, that specifically captures his attention. Who then, who then is this guy that I hear all these things about? It won't be the only time this question is raised today. We're not sure how long those 12 apostles are gone, but when they return, they debrief with Jesus. Then they head out together to Bethsaida. Word gets around. Crowds gather again. Jesus welcomes them. And in verse 11, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now, does that sound familiar? Jesus does the very same thing he sent the twelve out to do earlier. He shares the responsibility and the privilege of his ministry with them. If you've been traveling through Luke's gospel with us, you know that physical healing, that's been a big part of Jesus' ministry, hasn't it? Healing was the sign of God's kingdom breaking in. To our broken world, a taste of the kingdom of God, morsels of the meal to come. And now God's kingdom, now though here today, it's arrived through Jesus' death and resurrection. And so when we proclaim the good news of the kingdom today, it's not physical healing that demonstrates the truth of what we say. It is the decisive historical fact of what Jesus has accomplished. That's why at Mania we're not healing people. We're proclaiming Jesus and what he's done. Now we have a greater sign to share with people than just a physical cure. Now we call people to look to God's Son, who's brought in God's eternal kingdom through his death and resurrection. That is a task that we are not sufficient for, are we? Though thankfully, the one who sends us is. He is. Number two, the unique mission of Jesus. This is a taste of God's King, verses 12 to 22. We saw Jesus call the twelve to him in verse 1, and here in verse 12, 
the twelve take the initiative to go and approach Jesus. The crowds haven't gone away. It's getting late. Everyone's hungry. They're in a deserted place. Send the crowd away, the twelve say. They need to find something to eat and somewhere to stay. But Jesus is not inclined to send anyone away hungry. He he wants at least to leave people with something to chew over, doesn't he? So he replies to the twelve, you give them something to eat. Their faces fall. Looks of dismay and helplessness. They've managed to scrounge up, what, five loaves of bread and two fish. Enough to feed a few people, but there's at least 5,000 mouths to feed, probably more. They could go and buy food, though I'm not sure where they'd find the money. How much would it cost to feed over 5,000 people? Well, it sort of depends on how well you want to feed them. Enough family pizzas from Broadway Pizza to feed everyone would cost you, I reckon, roughly 60000 bucks. You could get everyone a quarter pounder value meal from Macca's, around $70,000. A large Italian BMT sub box from Subway, well, that would set you back $110,000, I think, for everyone. That's a chunk of change to shell out, isn't it? For a meal that's only going to leave you hungry 12 hours later. Jesus wants the crowd to eat well, really well. In short, the twelve know they are utterly insufficient for the task Jesus has set before them. If it's up to them to feed so many people, they will fail. So everything depends on Jesus. And that is precisely what Jesus wants. So at Jesus' instruction, the disciples organize the crowd to sit down in groups of about 50 each. And look what Jesus does in verse 16. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. On their own, the disciples cannot give the crowd something to eat. Only Jesus can do that. The disciples can only give what they have received from Jesus. We can only give what Jesus has given us. And what has he given us? Food that fully satisfies. Verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Do you know what's the only miracle? Do you know this, kids? What is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's this one. It echoes God's powerful and gracious provision way back in the Old Testament to his people. In the time of Moses, remember, hungry crowds of Israelites in the wilderness being fed with manna? But I think there's more to this as well. Jesus' death, it overshadows this 
whole passage in Luke chapter 9. Luke's mention of Herod, remember, it foreshadows Jesus' death. Herod tries to see Jesus, but he's not going to see Jesus until he finally sees him in the hours before Jesus' crucifixion. And in a few verses, we'll read that Jesus explicitly speaks about his own death. And here, Jesus' actions in taking the bread, giving thanks, breaking the bread, and giving it to his disciples, they bear a striking resemblance to what Jesus will do when he shares the Last Supper with the Twelve before his death. Jesus' death, the gift of himself for us, that is ultimately the food that nourishes, that satisfies. And later on, Luke tells us that Jesus, he's with some folks after his resurrection, enjoying the hospitality of friends. Again, he takes some bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it and gives it to others. And it's at that precise moment that their eyes are opened to see Jesus for who he really is, the resurrected Lord and the fulfillment of God's promises. That question of Jesus' identity, it comes up again here. Later on, Jesus is praying. His disciples are with him. He asks that identity question, who do the crowds say I am? The disciples reply, and it sounds a little bit like a multiple choice question on a test. Remember those? A, some say John the Baptist. B, others say Elijah. C, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And in true classic multiple choice fashion, the answer is D, none of the above. Jesus puts the question to Peter in verse 20. Take a look. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And friends, let's hear this question for ourselves. Jesus is not interested in, well, my, my mates say this about Jesus. Expert opinion says Jesus is probably... My mom or dad say that Jesus is, the culture says this. My best friend says this. Jesus isn't interested in that. He is interested in you. He asks you, who do you say I am? How would you answer that question? Peter answers, God's Messiah. God's anointed one, God's chosen king, the Christ of God. He's right, he's right, but Peter and the disciples, they still have lots to learn. So in verse 21, Jesus says, keep this under wraps for now. Because there's more that you need to wrap your heads and your hearts around. And he goes on to say what that is. See this striking statement. This is incredible. In verse 22, Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed 
and on the third day be raised to life. This is Jesus' unique mission. What only he can do, what he must do, what is absolutely necessary, suffer, be rejected, be killed, and be raised to life. It's not bad luck, no. It is the good plan of God. Because it is only Jesus' suffering, his rejection, his crucifixion, and resurrection that provide the unending life and satisfaction that we need and crave. Though the crowds may not have realized it, they have received a taste of God's King, a taste of the blessing that Jesus brings. Number three, the comprehensive message of Jesus, a taste of life, verses 23 to 27. Immediately, Jesus throws the doors open. Verse 23, then he said to them all, this includes us. Jesus' offer here is for everyone. It is comprehensive in its scope and in its claim. Here it is. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Must. Did you see that word? Must. It is the same word that Jesus used to speak about his mission. Because you can no more separate this call from Christian discipleship than you can separate suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection from Jesus Christ. Being Jesus' disciple, trusting Jesus, involves a regular choice. It, it consists of daily decisions. To throw in a Star Wars reference, as Mando says, this is the way. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, following Jesus. And let's take a moment to, to just consider quickly each of these. Denying ourselves. Denying ourselves. It looks like saying no to ourself. No to myself. And yes to Jesus as the most important person in my life. Because deep down, I think we know that we cannot achieve for ourselves what only Jesus offers. And when Jesus puts before us that call to deny ourself, I think what he's doing, he's actually inviting us to find our true identity within his identity, to let Jesus define you. And that's actually wonderfully freeing. When we let Jesus shape our identity, when we let him shape ourselves, we're freed from the crushing burden of trying to define ourselves, to reinvent ourselves, to actualize ourselves. This is good news. Number two, taking up our cross. What is your cross to bear? 
Surely it must mean more than dodgy Wi-Fi and bad coffee, right? It does. A wooden cross was an instrument of cruelty and painful execution. Now, Jesus' disciples, they don't yet know that a cross will be the instrument of their master's death. And so to hear this, it would have been shocking. Taking up our cross, that is the action that accompanies the attitude of dying to ourselves. It signifies Jesus' claim on our lives and our commitment to him. It involves a hard, steady slog through suffering. There's nothing glamorous about it. It is a sign of the sentence that you're under. Though here's the irony. Here's the irony. Yes, it may feel like we are marching towards death. But the reality is that we are marching towards life. That's the impact of Jesus first taking up his cross for us. Number three, following Jesus. Flashback to that hungry crowd who followed Jesus and were fed by Jesus. Remember how that true story finished. There were leftovers. Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces. There was plenty for those who followed Jesus then. And friends, there's more than enough for those who choose to follow Jesus now. If you choose to follow Jesus, you won't miss out. You won't. Of all the people that you follow in one way or another, that you look up to, that you're interested in, that you're modeling your lives on, how many of them can you say, this person not only would die for me, this person did die for me. They gave their life to forever save mine. Not many. In fact, only one. How gracious, how precious is Jesus. You cannot count the cost of following Jesus unless you're sold on just how valuable he is. Let me run that by you again. You cannot count the cost of following Jesus, of taking up your cross, unless you're sold on just how valuable Jesus is. Jesus always paves the way. He is the pioneer of our salvation and calls us to follow him. It may be tempting in today, our age, this time, our country, our space, to fixate on how many followers we have, how many likes and views we get, how many people are under us, how many people we're influencing. Though what Jesus says is that what we really need is following him to be the priority in our hearts and lives. That's what we need. We are followers. We are losers. Welcome to the Christian life. 
The way we take hold of the gift of eternal life is by losing our life for Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you're not following Jesus, that means you are backing yourself. And that is the way to eternal loss. You don't want to do that. Wanting to be Jesus' disciple and wanting to orchestrate your own idea of salvation, those two things are mutually exclusive. You can only choose one. Our world is chock-a-block with advice, instructions about how you can save your life. But Jesus says, lose your life for me. Trust me with your life. Let me rule your life. Die to self. Live for me. Yes, there is loss, but boy, we gain so much more, don't we? Jesus invites us to do the maths in verse 25. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Run the numbers. Do the maths. What good is it to gain the whole world at the expense of your very self? It's great for a while, maybe even until you die, but then it's terrible. The worst thing you can imagine. Jesus gives us this eternal perspective. Check out verse 26. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The cross is shameful. There's no getting around it. Each one of us must decide if we'll be ashamed of Jesus or if we'll bear that shame in his name. How do you handle that kind of shame for the long haul, over the long term? By learning to find rich satisfaction in Jesus. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you say those words and mean it? Will it be worth it? For sure. Certainly. Suffering now, glory later. That's the pattern of Christ's life. It's the pattern of the Christian life. Right now, the world thinks there is zero, nothing glorious about a first century Jew who suffered, was rejected, and killed on a cross. It's shameful, embarrassing. Though one day, one day the world will see just how glorious Jesus is when he returns. And all those who are true disciples of Jesus will share his glory in God's kingdom. We'll finish here at verse 27. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come in Jesus' death and resurrection. Yes, some standing there that day, they did not taste death before they saw the kingdom of God. And one day, the kingdom will fully come when Jesus comes in his glory. 
And all who stand with Jesus now, who walk with Jesus, who find their identity in Jesus' true identity, all who trust Jesus will share in God's glorious kingdom because Jesus tasted death for us. In order to follow in Jesus' footsteps, you must be filled with his food. Only his food will sustain you, will satisfy you, will save you. Followers of Jesus must be fed by Jesus. It's the food we need not just for this week, but for every day of our lives. And it is freely ours in Jesus. Amen.